Ninja. Hi everyone and welcome to Geography Ninja. Now, um, if I'm anything like you, I'm stuck in a lockdown situation at the moment in the middle of a global pandemic and um, I've shied away a little bit from doing too much uh, too many podcast episodes on COVID-19. I did one a couple of months ago, the geography of coronavirus. Um, but I've got to the point where there's, there's just so much going on, there's so much out there, and geography is is shifting as a result of that. Now, I had originally intended to, um, to do a, a single podcast, which was called... Um, seven ways COVID-19 is changing our geography. But actually, when I started researching it and putting things together, I just found there was, there was just too much, too many different themes, too much depth um, to really make it viable as one podcast. So what I'm going to do is a series of different podcasts, which all have this theme, how COVID-19 is changing our geography. Um, so the first one we're going to do today is our, our relationship with the natural world. So, okay, so the first question is, you know, to what extent are we now part of some huge natural experiment? And one thing that did catch my attention was in the, the Financial Times, um, Johannes Vogel, who is Director General of the Museum of Natural History in Berlin, um, and also a, a professor at the Humboldt University. Uh, there was an article there that he'd written, which was titled, Coronavirus has exposed our arrogant relationship with nature. And it really got me thinking, well, what is our relationship with nature? And, and you know, in what ways is covid 19 changing it so the point he makes is that we, we're part of this great uh, you know global natural experiment the fact that this virus has shifted from one species to another it's crossed what he calls this the this the species line and it's you know we we humans are new host uh, with no natural defenses now very geographically uh, Vogel makes the the point that usually we would have geographical features, you know, nat natural physical features such as mountains or oceans to slow the spread of um, a new virus outbreak. The big difference is that, you know, because of globalisation, where we are in terms of our development, we, we are a cosmopolitan species. Um, in what the article says, we're highly mobile, super numerous and super networked. You know, that is, is us. But really, what is this? Uh, what is our relationship with the natural world? Now, in, in a, a bored uh, moment over the last few days, I was just having a look online at Amazon and I've, I've ordered a book that was very influential to me when I was at university. Um, and it was called The Roots of Modern Environmentalism. And um, I found it on Amazon, 72p. I've got to spend, spend about £3 on postage, but I thought, well, that's great. And one of the big things I remember in there was really all the sort of philosophical underpinnings of humans' relationship with nature. And we'll touch on a couple of those um, within this podcast. 
But, you know, in terms of COVID-19, um, there's just so much out there at the moment. The United Nations Environment Programme. Um, uh, there's an article there written by someone called Pushpam Kumar, who is the chief environmental economist for um, United Nations Environment Programme. And the point that gets made in there is that, you know, now we're faced with COVID-19, which really is is emphasising the fact that we, that humans are affected by by nature, nature's affected by by humans. We've got what what Kumar calls a mutually effective relationship between people and nature. Now, the other point that is made um, there is that we've we really we're in a position now where we have got to face up to the, you know the limits to which humans can push nature before things start going wrong before the the impact is uh, becomes negative now when we start thinking about limits um this just takes takes us into for geographers what i i think is actually very familiar territory so we might think about with limits we could think on what on one side we might have what we call technocentric approaches um to dealing with uh you know whether there are limits um, environmentally. If you take a technocentric approach, your view is going to be very much, well, technology and innovation can overcome whatever natural limits the earth has, any ecological limits, well, we can overcome them through just developing new technology, you know, raising the bar, raising the carrying capacity because we, we have the technology to do so. On the other side of that, we might think about views which are considered ecocentric. In other words, they would suggest the Earth has got some sort of finite carrying capacity. There's only so many humans that can be sustained at a particular level of of consumption. We can't we can't go beyond that. The Earth sets sets the limits. If we try and push that, that is to our, our peril or our downfall. Ecocentric. So we might think of. Um, well, what could be termed deep green um, ecologist, you know, someone who's, who's very, takes a very um, forceful ecocentric view, would really see see humanity, see themselves and humanity as being completely subject to nature rather than in control of it. And that, that really emphasises that divide between technocentric and ecocentric thinking. Yes, yes, I see, I see. Okay, well, that gives a little bit of, sort of theoretical framework underpinning what we're we're talking about here. Now, um, Richard Osfield at the Carey Institute of Ecosystem Studies in Millbrook, at New York, um, is um, amongst those developing what's called an emerging discipline of planetary health. Um, and this is really looking at the, the links between human health and ecosystem health. Um, so, you know, if we're, we're thinking about these, these different, different ways of um, looking at, at limits, uh, we're also thinking about these connections. How, how, how is there, the, how is there a, a mutually effective relationship between people and nature? So planetary health would seem to fit the bill there. What Richard Osfield says is 
There's a misapprehension among scientists and the public that natural ecosystems are the source of threats to ourselves. It's a mistake. Nature poses threats, it's true, but it's human activities that do the real damage. The health risks, risks in a natural environment can be made much worse when we interfere with it. And what he um, emphasises here is that We've got certain species, so uh, rats and bats, for example, um, which are linked, very strongly linked, actually, with the spread of what are called zoonotic diseases. And by the term zoonotic, so it's a really good key term for us here, zoonotic, um, so this relates to the word zoonosis, and that is a disease that can be transmitted from animals to people or a disease that normally exists in animals, but it can also have an impact and infect humans. And, you know, lots of different zoonotic diseases, uh, which we've contended with for a while, you know, anthrax is, is a good example of that. Um, so that's, that's quite interesting, isn't it? You know, planetary health uh, discipline and zoonotic diseases. Now, probably one major example, um, you know, disease ecologists, disease ecology, there's a potential future career choice for someone listening to this podcast out there. Um, but if you're a disease ecologist, you might argue that viruses um, and other, other uh, you know, pathogens could spread from animals to humans in some of the uh, sort of marketplaces that we have uh, in the world that are providing for rapidly expanding populations, particularly in urban areas where there is a demand for fresh produce. Um, so, you know, we're talking about you know, lots of the analysis so far of COVID-19 um, you know, we've we've been introduced to the Chinese city of Wuhan and thinking that maybe, you know, there's a fresh um, produce market, what's sometimes called a wet market, one that sells fresh produce and meat, um, wet market, where maybe, you know, did COVID-19 originate in one of these um, markets? Now, um, in Wuhan, uh it, it was it was known for selling uh, wild animals, um, including I've got a list here, including live wolf pups, salamanders, crocodiles, scorpions, rats, squirrels, foxes, civets, and turtles. Um, we've also got in in places like Central Africa, we've got similar markets who are selling species ranging from monkeys to bats, rats different species of bird, mammal, insect and rodent, uh, which are, are, are there for, for human consumption. Now, very recently, Beijing in China has outlawed the trading and eating of wild animals uh, in a response to the COVID-19 situation, with the exception of fish and, um, and seafood. Um, but the you know if you look at someone like Lagos in Nigeria, Lagos has got a huge 
fresh market. Lagos is one of the world's most rapidly expanding urban areas. Um, you know, it's got increasingly high rural to urban migration. Um, really is run, running a pace. Now, the, Lagos in Nigeria has been called a nuclear bomb waiting to happen. This is from Kate Jones, who is chair of ecology and biodiversity at UCL, University College in London. Um, but the point that she makes with that also is there's a development issue here. She says it's not fair to demonise places which don't have fridges. Uh, these traditional markets provide much of the food for Africa and Asia. So as geographers, you know, we can start making these connections. Uh, you know, on the one hand, we've got rural to urban migration going on, boosting the urban populations in cities like Lagos and Wuhan and, and other, other places around the globe. We've got global inequalities, meaning that, um, you know, we've got access to different things in the planet. Not everybody has prepackaged food in um, supermarkets and grocery stores. Many people rely on these informal markets for their for their food. But on the same token, we've got the creation of these zoonotic diseases that are happening. Other thinking is, is linking some of this to land use changes and environmental destruction. Now, clearly that happens when urbanisation takes part, but we've got, we're making further inroads into the natural world through deforestation and with human activities being pushed into more and more remote areas that weren't previously um, accessible. So alongside all of this uh, land use ch change and uh, environmental destruction, you've got a, a resulting decrease in biodiversity and a, an increase in the risk of new viruses um, making this species jump from animals to to humans. So, um, you know, the, the question then becomes, well, which animals are most likely um, to to cause this, this jump in in uh, viruses between uh, animals and and humans so if we think about domesticated animal species such as you know cattle and sheep and dogs and so on um, they they already share a number of viruses with humans and um, You've got something in in the region of eight times more um, animal-borne viruses um, in those sorts of species than with wild mammal species. However, there are some uh, wild animals that have actually done quite well um, from sort of human-dominated environment so you know on the one side we're, we're talking about destruction of natural habitats but some species actually do quite well um, and they also can share viruses with people so if we think about bats for example rodents or primates chimpanzees and so on often living either among people or very close to people um uh, you know close to where people live close close to farms and so on now if you take Species like that, rodents, bats and primates, um, one study shows that these um, 
account for something like 75% of all viruses. Um, bats, just looking at bats on their own, um, bats have been linked to things like Ebola and SARS, for example. So this research, we recently research um, published in the journal The Proceedings of the Royal Society, um, did find that this this risk of viruses making the leap between animals and humans um, was the highest from uh, what they called threatened and endangered wild animals, um, where populations had declined because they'd suffered from a loss of habitat or from hunting or wildlife trade and so on. So the more that humans encroach into these uh, very biodiverse areas, um, we've got this increase in the risk of um, a spillover of new infectious diseases um, and this you know, increased contact between um, humans and, and wildlife. Um, primates and, and bats apparently are very high on, on the list, M much more significant um, potential viruses uh, compared to all of the others. So what does that mean? Now, back in 2008, Kate Jones, who we talked about earlier, the Chair of Ecology and Biodiversity at UCL, um, she led a team of researchers who identified over 300 different diseases that emerged between 1960 and 2004. Um, and the result of that research showed that at least 60% of those um, came from animals. So these are uh, infectious diseases that jumped the species barrier, went from animals and were able to um, affect humans. And what Kate Jones says uh, is that we're researching how species in degraded habitats um, are likely to carry more viruses which can infect humans. The sim simpler systems get what she calls an amplification effect. In other words, you destroy those landscapes. The species that are left with are the ones humans can get diseases from. And, of course, at the moment, we've got uh, examples all over the planet where biodiversity is under threat. You know, biodiversity loss is up there with climate change as, as a you know global environmental issue um in, in fact sometimes it's one of those things that climate change often takes the priority it eclipses some of the problems that are going on in, in terms of biodiversity loss um so we've got other other thinking around this actually in fact what we're, i think what we'll do let's let's just have a think about a little bit more theory at this point so we're, we're thinking about the um we're thinking about this idea of species uh you know loss of biodiversity loss of habitats and how this might lead to greater um greater you know infectious diseases affecting humans let's have a think about a little, another bit of theory so if we go back to the early 17th century we've got who's often called the the father of modern philosophy rene um descartes and um, Descartes was one of the, the things that Descartes was looking at 
was this seeing humans as somehow wholly separate from and superior to nature um and really the the i this this sort of thinking what has been uh called cartesian dualism in other words you on one side of it you've got you've got uh reason you know where humans are sort of thinking thinking things through and then on the other side you might have nature and they're separate they're separate things um and this has been really influential in shaping how how we might think you know how we how we think about humans relationship with the natural world um being separate um somehow now a lot of this thinking has been taken forward as well there's an eco-feminist philosopher uh, Val Plumwood um now she was one of the first to suggest that this sort of dualism dualism cartesian dualism um is really at the the heart of the world's environmental crises so and the, the example might be that really the you know biodiversity on the planet nature in other words the only value it has is what it can provide for humans so we see nature as this big you know um list of things that we can just use however we want because we're going to benefit from it other than the value that it provides for humans it doesn't have any other um uh, uh, any other particular value so you know the the question then really needs to be you know how does all of this theory uh philosophical phil- philosophical ideas and so on how does that link to where we are at the moment with covid-19 well i would say that it's you know a num- a lot of researchers like like the ones we've just been talking about a lot of researchers do make this connection think there is there's a connection between human destruction of the natural world and biodiversity and creating the perfect conditions for new viruses and diseases to to start off so you know maybe you know is is are some of the problems related to um centuries really of human undervaluing of nature and you know seeing nature as as something that humans have got some sort of domination over dominion over over nature we just use however we we see fit and um i think you know there's a lot of thinking out there at the moment that the the it's almost like a perfect storm so if we think about the the united nations environment chief inga anderson um uh she says that you know nature is sending us a message with the coronavirus pandemic and the ongoing climate crisis all of these things are sort of coming together um and having all lots of pressures at the same time something's got to give so there was an uh, an interview in the guardian newspaper uh during march where you know the point that she she makes is she says we are intimately interconnected with nature whether we like it or not if we don't take care of nature we can't take care of ourselves so you know people quite high up in science and sort of in, you know environmental thinking um making these sort of connections 
Now, so another model, um, just give it a little, little bit more background, uh, theoretical side of things. Another model that geographers sometimes use is the epidemiological transition model. So, you know, transition is showing something changing over time. Uh, this one is showing a change over time in, in the, the type of um, diseases, really, I suppose, that affect humans. So usually you see the epidemiological transition in four stages. The first stage, um, which is really supposed to be the, at the earliest stages of, of human society and development. Stage one on there is about infectious and parasitic diseases and how at the, at, in the first stage of, of human history and development, you've got these infectious diseases, which are sort of keeping some sort of check on population growth. Population growth never really goes that high because these these uh, diseases are are affecting are affecting people and you know keeping the population level down. Um, stage two is where you have the introduction of things like better sanitation, better nutrition and medicine and so on. So these pandemics, it's this is called the receding pandemic stage, stage two. So things start to improve in stage two. By the time you get to stage three, the type of uh, diseases affecting humans are more either degenerative or things that people are, are life, lifestyle type issues. So it might include things like um, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, obesity, and so on. So for example, at stage three, um, as people get more affluent they might also be doing things to harm their health like smoking or like overeating and so on so causing health problems by the time you get to stage five uh, sorry stage four you've got these what are called delayed degenerative diseases and this this might be you know as people live longer just the pure fact of living longer means people uh, you know, degenerative diseases do tend to affect people. So you might have things like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's happening. So any anything due to increasing um, life expectancy. Uh, people live longer, but as you know, one of the, the downsides of that is people get affected by degenerative diseases. Now, we could potentially add a fifth stage to this epidemiological transition model and this is where you get this resurgence of infectious diseases so going right back to stage one um, due to globalization and you know I think there's a strong case to suggest that's maybe what we're looking at at the moment with something like COVID-19. Um, so you know this transition model really helpful uh, we might look at it through you know studying population or medical geography i suppose you 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 could look at it under um and i suppose in short it's looking at this this how infectious diseases eventually get uh, replaced by more sort of chronic diseases as people live longer um as development improves now the world health organization back in 1996 there was a paper produced called the epidemiological transition this was published in the eastern mediterranean health journal and the point well the point that the abstract makes there is that this transition was thought to be a unidirectional process in other words you know it's it's a one-way street you start off at stage one you move to stage four and that's that's how it works 
Um, I think more recent thinking about this is that this the the transition is much more complex and dynamic than than was originally thought. So um, you know some diseases are disappearing, others are re-emerging. Geography ninja. <laughs> Okay, so whilst we've got this idea of a transition in our heads, you know, transitioning in terms of the types of diseases that affect people, what about the transition that we've seen maybe in food production um, over recent decades? So we've seen this big increase in factory farming, industrial scale agriculture. Um, if you take China as an example, really from the 1990s onwards, um, China has, has really increased its food productions to, to this you know gigantic industrial scale um, now one one particular um, uh, effect of this is that if you're a small farmer uh, you might be sort of you might lose out you might be pushed out of the food production industry because it's, it's just got so giant you might then be trying to find a new way um, to make a living. Um, and, you know, there is evidence that in, in lots of cases, people have turned to far, farming wild species, previously ones that had only been eaten um, for, for sort of basic subsistence purposes, not really used in, in any big way. So wild food... Um, you know, you could see it as a as a, a luxury product, couldn't you? Wild food, but um, you know, this is really as a result of small um, farmers, food producers getting pushed out by big industrial scale farming happening, taking up more land, which means it's these small scale farmers they're they're being pushed out more to the periphery, more to these places that. You know, maybe on the on the 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 fringe of what is, um, what what is seen as as farmland. You know, you're you're going into the more remote um, areas that you can't really cultivate. You know, the edge of the forest and so on, where you do have biodiversity loss. You have loss of habitats, and it's in these areas where you've maybe got the greatest opportunity for this spillover of a virus from an animal species um, into human. And really, over the last few decades, we've had more and more opportunities for that to happen as um, you know, urbanisation, industrialisation has, has um, accelerated. All right, then. Well, one final idea to leave you with before I finish off, and that relates to what has become known as the Gaia hypothesis. Now, I'm sure a lot of you know about this already, but the Gaia hypothesis this dates from the early 1970s. James Lovelock, um, who I think originally was a, was a NASA scientist and an American biologist, Lynn Mar Margulis, um, put forward this idea of the, the Gaia hypothesis. Now, Gaia, um, Greek mythology, we're talking about Mother Earth, the Earth, Earth goddess, um, but the idea of the hypothesis is that the Earth is is really one uh, self-regulating single living organism, and it's it's regulating things to allow um, life to happen 
and life to to you know be sustained on the planet um with the idea that if things get out of balance um that Gaia would try and rebalance it by um correcting the things that that were going wrong so if if there was a, if you know if a species was putting the whole planet out of kilter then Gaia would do something to re-establish some sort of equilibrium on the planet. Now on that basis there were several, well quite a number actually, of um, (laughs) quite a bit of writing out there at the moment, a lot of comment from people on well is the Covid-19, is this this part of Gaia's defensive system? Is Is it a way of saying that the earth is needing to try and restore its its health restore this this balance so you know as a result of covid-19 where are we as a species at the moment so all around the world you know i'm looking out of my window at the moment as i'm talking to you everything is extremely quiet people are in their homes um we've we've been forced indoors you know governments have have put in place lockdown but the the effect of that is our impact on the environment at the moment has has been reduced greatly you know so air pollution's down people aren't flying people aren't driving people aren't really buying anything um this is the the type of thing that environmental campaigners and climate scientists have been saying we need to do this for the last 20 or 30 years um ever since uh climate change has been on the the agenda um you know, is this is this Gaia's revenge? Is this you know the the Earth needs to do something to rebalance um, natural systems? Who knows? Who who knows? I mean, the fundamental question I've just got to leave you with uh, has got to be you know how can or how should our relationship with nature change post COVID? Uh, gigantic question, I know. Anyway, look, I'm going to finish off there. Um, I have got. This is the first one of a series. I'm planning to do several others based on how COVID-19 is changing our geography. I hope you enjoyed this one and I will speak to you again very soon. Okay, bye bye.